Hi, welcome to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher. This week, we're going to dissect a much-talked-about conversation between Jake Tapper and the White House's Kellyanne Conway during a week of high drama between another week of high drama between the media and the White House. Then we're going to turn to a staffing up in Australia by the New York Times and how that is reflecting a trend uh, in terms of foreign coverage by big media outlets. And finally, what is the state of healthcare coverage at a time when Obamacare is going to be back in the news? We'll talk to Trudy Lieberman on, about that. Now I turn to Davey Berti, CJR's senior Delacorte fellow. You got it that time. Awesome. Thanks for that, Kyle. And uh, thanks again for kicking it with us. We have got a great show for you this week. And keep your comments and thoughts and emails coming in. Joining us in our first segment here about Conway and Tapper is Pete Vernon, a Delacorte Fellow for CGR. Pete, thanks for joining us. Good to be here as always. There's a fascinating discussion between the CNN's Jake Tapper and White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway uh, yesterday afternoon. And before we talk about what was said and, and what it means, I want to give a little bit of the backstory that led up to this confrontation on air. So last weekend, a small skirmish erupted when the White House reportedly made Mike Pence available to all the major Sunday morning shows except CNN's. Obviously, CNN is a favorite target of President Trump, despite the network bending over backward to have his surrogates and supporters on air. And if you spend time in the right-wing media wormhole, as I do, you'll see CNN portrayed as sort of a stand-in for the crooked media. So in lieu of Pence, the White House offered CNN an interview with former campaign strategist-turned-TV spin doctor Kellyanne Conway, she of alternative facts in the Bowling Green massacre that wasn't. CNN declined, citing, among other reasons in a few reports, concerns about Conway's credibility. So fast forward to Tuesday with the White House press briefing, just hours before Conway was set to do another interview on Jake Tapper's show, The Lead. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer claimed, falsely, that CNN had actually walked back those comments about Conway's credibility. CNN's PR shop very quickly tweeted back that, quote, CNN was clear on the record about our concerns for Kellyanne Conway's credibility. We have not retracted or walked back those comments. Those are the facts. So that was tweeted out at 1.12 p.m. yesterday, Tuesday. And over the course of the next couple of hours, they get thousands of retweets. And it really set us up for an interview that had me, at least, on the edge of my seat. And basically what happened was Jake introduced the interview, had about three minutes of pretty normal conversation talking about the new Secretary of Education. Kellyanne claimed that Putin and Trump are not BFFs, in her words. And then three minutes in, Jake Tapper went to the clip of Trump claiming the media doesn't cover terrorist attacks and he brought the receipts. He put up a, an eight-window screen of CNN reporters on the ground covering terrorist attacks and basically said to Kellyanne, what is he talking about? And it just evolved into this very fascinating discussion of the White House and the information that it puts out. Jake Tapper was adamant over the course of this interview that the White House was doing a disservice to the American public by either making false claims or lying or just putting out run-of-the-mill statistics that are provably false. Yeah, I mean, the, the lines he took, and I, I wrote down a couple of them because I thought they were so striking. He said to Kellyanne Conway at one point, that's a lovely spin, but that's not what he was saying. In a different conversation, uh, referencing Trump's false claim that the murder rate is at a 47-year high and that no one reports on it, Jake Tapper said to Kellyanne, there's a reason nobody reports on that. It's not true. Facts are stubborn things. The forcefulness with which he approached that conversation, I think a lot of people in, in journalism circles appreciated, and it's certainly made for a good TV. Kyle, I'm curious what you think about this, because when I was watching Jake Tapper 
it seemed like he was speaking for the media in some senses, sort of our shared exasperation. Exasperation is the best word for it. Yeah, he looked very tired. There were bags under his eyes. His brow furrows were all of our brow furrows. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first off, I think this is my first time being invited into the um, inner sanctum of the kicker. That's yeah. correct. Um, it might uh, be your last time. It could well be. So maybe I should say nothing and just, <laughs> just watch in reverence. I mean, I thought the interview was great. And I thought he had a lot, as Pete said, he had a lot of ammunition. But I also detected a real frustration. And in fact, especially when it, when it came to this terrorism question, he, he made the point that like, look, we have covered this, our reporters around the world, at some physical danger have gone out to these places and done this. So to suggest that we haven't been there is it's more than just missing the facts, but it's sort of professionally offensive. He um, said it's offensive given the fact that CNN and other organizations have reporters in danger right now covering ISIS. Right. And I think that I think that really tapped a new strain, which was there is an emotional response to all this that is developing among reporters. And that is like, it's one thing to sort of claim that facts that are wrong are true. It's another thing to say that this happened when it didn't actually happen. But we're really getting to like a core emotional thing here, which is partly it's about the press as a democratic institution in America. I mean, this is something that is ingrained in our foundation as a country. And and the fact that the president and his staff seem to be so glibly dismissing this, I think increasingly the press is finding like really hard to swallow. I was super jacked up watching this. I I felt like Jake Tapper was just repping journalism in a very good way. Can we stop and point out to longtime listeners of The Kicker that he was my favorite cable TV person? Yeah, it was was, uh, Pete's cable crush. Everybody's (laughs) jumping on the bandwagon now. I've been in this weird place since the election where up is down, left is right. It's hard to say whether the Trump communication shop are geniuses or whether they're chaotic and foolish. My instant reaction was thinking man, was that good for journalism? Like, how will this come off in the right-wing media sphere? Should we be worried that Jake Tapper used so much of this prime real estate on his show to talk about the media and truth and facts? Do people really care about that? And then after a, a few minutes, I'm you know thinking to myself, man, I just got to get out of game theory, accept it for what it is. Jake Tapper did an awesome job. And you know he made plain in a way that hasn't been made plain before the fundamental problem with information, how the White House is treating information and the role information plays in our debates, in our democratic process. At one point, he talked about, you know, he, I, I laughed because he was like, this all makes my head hurt. Like, we ha- this is the president of the United States that is saying these things. This is extraordinary. I mean, and I think we're all trying to get our sea legs, both in journalism and in the, in, in the public in general. Like, we've never been here before. I did also think it was really interesting. There was almost a plea by him at the end of the interview in which he told Kellyanne, Kellyanne like, look, I'm dying to cover some of what you guys are doing. I'm, ty- I'm dying to get into some of these policies. And I'm sure you would want me to get into some of these policies, too. I mean, Look, this president has, whether you support him or don't support him, rolled out an incredible array of policy. This really does deserve some serious attention. And I think the White House would love it if the press devoted some serious attention. But we keep getting distracted every day by the fact that there are these lies that just keep coming out. I was actually talking to somebody earlier today who was raising the question, should we just ignore them? They're coming so often that at what point does it just become repetitive? At what point does it become like, all right, here's another falsehood from the White House. What's the point of chasing each of them down? I actually disagree with that. I do think it's part of our job. It's part of the very definition of our job as journalists to sort of fact check people in authority. And there's nobody obviously more in authority than the president of the United States. So I don't think we can just start dismissing these things. I don't think that's that's the 
path we ought to be going down. What you're talking about and what Dave brought up about your first reaction being, is this the best use of the real estate? I do think that's interesting because as Kyle, you just said, like there's a lot of policy to discuss and unpack. Like they just cleared the way for the Dakota Access Pipeline to go through. What does that mean uh, policy-wise? And we're using our time with um, his, with Trump's advisors to talk about you know, specific meanings of tweets. What does that mean? I don't know. That's a question of like, what is the best use of our time? There's so much going on. I think it's also a question of framing as well. And obviously, Jake, during his interview, was talking a lot about sort of the media directly. But I think in some parts of it, he was framing the question in a little bit of a different, in, in my view, more effective way. You can either say that Trump is lying to the media, his aides are lying to the media, and we are outraged for this. Or you can pose it in a different way, which is saying Trump is using the bully pulpit of the presidency of the United States to share bad information with the public. And I think we need to turn this conversation a little bit outward in terms of our framing. This is bad for the public, not just for the media and our day-to-day reporting. Well, But then we have to get over the hurdle of the fact that he was doing this throughout the campaign and millions of Americans didn't care, right? How do you deal with that? I mean, if if you take the stance that, you know, the public needs to know when when their president says something that's not true, it's not entirely clear the public cares or a, or a big chunk of the public cares. So, I mean, I almost think that journalists have to do their job as as we see it. I do think that the cumulative effect of all this will start to matter. If this keeps happening day in and day out, and I think that even Trump's base will start to see that some of the stuff that he says isn't true. I think it will have an effect. There was actually an interesting poll taken by the Huffington Post and YouGov in December, which basically suggested that more than half of Trump supporters, if confronted with a fact check of Trump's statements by mainstream media, would be more likely to believe Trump. So the big question going forward is whether that number changes, whether more people from the Trump orbit can be convinced that he makes a habit of sharing yeah. bad and information. I mean, we ran a piece uh, yesterday about the use of six-column headlines in newspapers and on the top of websites. We're having these these big-picture discussions right now about truth, and we're not even three weeks into this administration. This is going to be a long battle. While it seems like there's something new happening every day, uh, there's some new interview, there's a press briefing, there's a a lie or a falsehood that needs to be corrected and shouted about, I do think if there's a constant chipping away at whatever animosity has been built up towards the media, if that's all we can do, isn't it? This notion that Dave raised about whether, and I think it's a, it's a question that we need to keep coming back to, how much of this is media being offended because Trump is attacking media, and therefore it's a story about us, which are, by the way, stories we love to read and write, and how much does this have a bigger democratic effect? I think we're still in the category of these are legitimate issues, but I do think we need to be aware of this you know, as we move forward and we have to be aware of not sort of descending into navel gazing. Again, I'm comfortable with the level of discussion going on right now, but I think it's just something to, to keep at the top of our head. All right, for our next segment, we are going down under and looking at how news organizations are investing in expansion programs in Australia. And joining us for this segment is Shelley Hepworth. She's a Delacorte Fellow for CGR. Shelley, what's up? Uh, how are you going? And uh, I think she might, I don't have to check the archives, but she might be CGR's first Australian staffer. I'll have oh, to uh, double check that. So you've been doing some reporting recently on New York Times and other major news organizations, investing a lot of time and energy into building out their Australia operations. Why is Australia such a target-rich environment for some of these big 
big players trying to expand globally. Probably because there's a lot of cultural similarities between Australia and the US makes it a bit easier. Also, language, obviously, there's no big language barrier there. And then I think a lot of these organizations probably already have quite a lot of readers in Australia. The New York Times, they just announced their expansion, but they already have about 1.2 million readers in Australia Mm. and a fair number of subscribers, but they, they won't say how many. But yeah, I mean, I think also Australians sort of have a history of being somewhat used to paying for content as well. So for, for the New York Times, that's appealing, I guess, because they're trying to build their subscriber base. Right, definitely. So what are these news organizations doing? How do they approach this sort of trying to make a landfall in a new country that has its own media ecosystem? How are they going about it? New York Times in particular, what are they doing? So the New York Times is starting small. They just announced their new bureau chief, Damien Cave. Um, They're starting with two other reporters, two Australian reporters. And then they're building out a team with some graphics people, a few editors. So they'll start with a team of about seven And they're not intending to have like a Australian homepage that they're going to populate to start with. They're just going to be doing, I guess, more enterprise reporting rather than trying to compete in the day-to-day news coverage for Australia and folding that into the existing New York Times offering. Right. So what is sort of the business imperative here? What do they want to do? For the Times, it's all about subscriptions. So I guess in their 2020 report, that's something that they've been emphasizing. With previous organizations that have gone in there, that that hasn't been what they've been doing. So BuzzFeed started in Australia about three years ago. They focus on native advertising as their revenue model. Uh, The Guardian, they have advertising. They do some publishing partnerships. And they also have their membership model. Um, so they won't be competing with the Times for subscribers. What's I mean, I know there's Murdoch-based properties, but what does the indigenous media scene look like? This is the main question for me, at least, because you have all of these organizations, BuzzFeed, the Times, Vice is a gigantic one. They're expanding yep. into all of these emerging markets. Yep. And each of them have very, very different media ecosystems and, yep. and markets. So it is curious to see if and how they tailor their products or their offerings to shoot for particular openings in those markets. Yeah, well, in Australia, I guess Australia historically has had a very high media ownership concentration. So, yeah, as you said, Murdoch News Corp papers, they're very big in Australia. Murdoch the, also owns uh, Fox News, uh, a lot of Wall, news, Street Journal, Wall Street Journal, New York Post, a, a lot of newspapers in the UK as well. Yeah. yeah. And then there's Fairfax Media. So it's basically two newspapers that kind of dominated the print market. Um, and then you've got a huge public broadcasting system as well. So these like organizations employ like thousands of staff. So I guess it's hard for these new players to compete with them dealing with like local news and things like that. So they need to sort of think about what their approach is going to be and focus on something that they think is going to work for them. So with BuzzFeed, they said basically they went in and they spent the first year doing the kind of more lighthearted stuff, um, listening to their audience and trying to get a feel for the market. And then they sort of went for more thematic coverage based on like Australia's identity. So they were one of the first news organizations to have like dedicated Indigenous affairs reporters, dedicated LGBTQ reporters. And then they also focus on gender and politics. So Mm. they're not trying to do everything, but they're trying to focus on areas where they think they can have an impact. BuzzFeed's wheelhouses. One of the interesting things you brought up in this piece that's going to be up at CJR.org is this idea that in the old days you would have international news organizations going to a country. So the New York Times would go to Australia to write stories for American readers. Yeah. And now you have these organizations, whether it's a legacy product like the Times or a new organization like BuzzFeed, and they're going to build up a, a readership or an audience 
in the countries that they are producing the work out of. Yeah, so it seems like it's kind of flipped in terms of what the motivation is. It's more about revenue now. I would assume that if these satellite offices can't make themselves viable, then they're probably not going to continue. It's, it's not so much about informing the US audience. I think that that's a byproduct of that. It does beef up their international coverage in general. They're sort of selling a different thing, too. They're not only selling to Australians coverage of Australia, but the New York Times is also selling the rest of New York Times coverage to Australians. So they want to get people in through the door by having this local or at least quasi-local focus. Yeah. But then to Australians who are in interested in global affairs saying, hey, here's the rest of the New York Times offerings. We cover the world better than anyone else. Yeah. And I think that's going to be particularly successful for them, considering how much interest there is in Trump news. Right. I think there's a lot of interest from Australians in Trump news and how Trump is going to affect Australians. So. Right. I, I was just curious. Uh, there was that call between the Australian prime minister and Trump, which didn't go so hot. And that was covered in a pretty scary way in US media. But I'm curious, in Australian media, how did they sort of portray that? I guess in Australia, people were very interested in the policy implications of that. So I don't know. I noticed that in the US media, there wasn't a lot of detail about what the refugee deal was. So there wasn't a lot of detail. We, we were all fixated on Trump yeah. just blowing Ex- a gasket. Exactly. So, <laughs> and making sure we were pronouncing the Australian prime minister's name correctly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in Australia, I guess there was a focus on that as well, obviously. But there was probably more of a focus on what the implications of that is. Because in Australia the uh, government's asylum seeker policy has been very contentious. Trump not agreeing to this deal has implications for these refugees that are hosted in Papua New Guinea and Nauru Island. That's a very divisive issue in Australia, and people are very concerned about those people. So, Well, glad to know that someone's focusing on the policy. <laughs> I'm curious, the thing that you bring up in your piece, which is an obvious uh, note, and this always comes up when news organizations expand elsewhere, is just the use of stereotype, focusing on, on kangaroos, sort of Australian Dave, outbacks. Dave, is, is this the part where we do our Australian accents? The shrimp on the barbie. Please yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I didn't have to do an American one. Right. So what did some of these folks tell you about that? I mean, you, you sort of, in your own analysis, pick that up, that they do tend to gravitate toward that, at least originally. Um, yeah, I think that's probably always going to happen when you're an outsider going into a new country. Your immediate idea of what the country is, is going to be focused on stereotypes because that's just all you know. It's your job to try and go beyond that. So, yeah, one of the things I mentioned in the piece was that when the New York Times first announced the news that Damien was going to be the bureau chief, they had a graphic of a reporter coming out of the patch of a kangaroo. Of course. And yeah, Australians had a bit of fun with that. I don't think everybody loved it. (laughs) (laughs) So for, for you, top three media tropes regarding Australia. There's the idea that Australia is this wild country with all these dangerous animals. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've, I've seen the videos of the kangaroos yeah. punching people. I've seen those. <laughs> yeah. No, people punching kangaroos. People punching kangaroos. I know. And, and everybody loves that. Right. <laughs> Except maybe me. And then there's, yeah, the shrimp on the barbie and dingo ate my baby. There's a few different oh. ones that come out. Wow. Yeah. What's the origin of shrimp on the barbie? Yeah. So I, w- I was looking into that. I was like, I was won- wondering where that came from. And I looked it up and apparently it came from a Tourism Australia ad that aired in the U.S. featuring uh, Paul Hogan, who you may know from Crocodile Dundee. Hmm. Um, He says something along those lines in the ad and it aired in the U.S. in the 80s. So I feel like that uh, stereotype needs a bit of an update. We need some more. (laughs) I mean, on a a connected note to this, when the Washington Post ran their story, they they had the scoop about this contentious call between (laughs) Trump and Turnbull, and their headline was... No, g'day, mate. Yeah. <laughs> See, that was my attempt to get that. Should have yeah. added in a good. crikey yeah. there. Uh, yeah. Seriously, but like, even in the this super serious story, story gotta fit in. <laughs> gotta fit in.
All right, for our third segment today, I want to move on to an area which I think is one of the most difficult areas of journalism, which is health care coverage, and specifically health policy coverage. It's incredibly complex. It varies state by state. And right now, we are on sort of the precipice of a huge political battle over the future of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. So joining us to help break down this topic now is Trudy Lieberman. She is a writer for the United States Project at CGR, which covers local news. And Trudy is a longtime healthcare writer, and she has recently published a great piece on CGR.org, sort of giving a lay of the land of healthcare journalism. Trudy, thanks for being on. Thank you. You have this huge fight looming with Obamacare. Give me a sense of what the state of healthcare journalism is. Is that is that something that could be answered in one way, or does it differ between national versus local outlets, between various states? Does it depend on local insurance markets? Give me a lay of the land. The short answer is that it does vary widely between local markets and the national scene. There is quite a lot of coverage at the national level and a scarcity of coverage at the local level. And that's just a broad statement. But in preparing for this, I went back, and I have been a longtime contributor to the Columbia Journalism Review and began covering health care when the Clinton plan was being debated in Congress. So this goes back a good 20-some years. And I went back and looked at my first stories I ever wrote for CJR, and they were about health care coverage of the Clinton plan. And what struck me was how remarkably similar Hmm. my coverage, my stories were to what I have written about the Affordable Care Act up until this point. I mean, the same issues, the same problems, the same uh, omissions in the press. It was just really amazing to see that. Nothing really had changed in the larger scheme of things. I mean, what are some of the common pitfalls then if they've, they've persisted for 20 or so years now? We didn't connect the dots for people. That was the biggest thing. Mm. We, we didn't then and we haven't now. What's in it really for them? And I think that looking back over my coverage of Obamacare for CJR over the last uh, nine years now, I would say that the press has done quite a poor job of actually doing that. And back in the day, they were also doing a pretty poor job of doing that. So we haven't really learned very much about how to make some of these health policy stories palatable and connect with the public who really needs to understand them. One of the interesting takeaways I had from your article, I mean, this this makes perfect sense, is that there is sort of a reinvestment in some policy coverage in Washington. You have Stat News, which is a project of the Boston Globe. You have Politico, which has invested in some policy coverage with its high-priced subscription offerings. And there's some other sort of nationally focused outlets doing interesting work in healthcare policy. But with Obamacare in particular, it seems like the variations from state to state is is one of the major storylines. So you have some states that accepted Medicaid expansions. You have some states that didn't. You have some states that have a thriving marketplace for Obamacare, some places that don't. It really varies. So it seems like the local media environment plays a huge role in dictating if and how people understand their health care. Well, I think that's right. And I think the shortcomings that I see is the local coverage. And going back 20 years ago, there was a lot more local coverage of this. The reporters didn't necessarily do a great job of it. They didn't always understand the ins and outs of the Clinton plan, which was as complicated, I think, as Obamacare is. However, we have fewer local reporters today than we have ever had, probably. And this is really a void. It's a void in 
what people are able to find out, what people are able to understand. And you mentioned the Medicaid expansion, which was a huge part of Obamacare. In fact, much of the increase in uh, people having coverage has come from the Medicaid expansion. But only 31 states expanded their coverage, and the rest of them did not. And a few of them had their own versions of what they wanted to do. All of this needs to be covered. All of this needs to be discussed. And I think, basically, I found one reporter in South Carolina who's actually been doing a great job of it. You bring up an interesting parallel, which is that just as we've had this huge cutback in local reporters, local healthcare reporters, healthcare companies have invested in a very big way in very sophisticated PR operations, media operations. Uh, there's obviously a lot of motion within healthcare and healthcare policy, so they certainly see an opportunity for them to get their message out. And you have this great detail from a reporter from Stat News who said that she gets 50 emails every hour from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., all from sellers pitching products and services. That's just an amazing snapshot of how the balance of power has shifted from journalists to increasingly these very large pharmaceutical uh, or healthcare providers. Well, that is exactly what's happened, and I have seen it in my own situation. I certainly don't get very many of these things, uh, but they do target people like Sharon Begley, who is a science writer for STAT, and she writes about this stuff all the time. And so they're always trying to get their information in front of her. What's happened is that that information has become kind of a substitute for good reporting, Mm. or perhaps for any reporting at all, because reporters are time crunched. They have to get so many pieces out, and there's the imperative to write for the web as well as maybe print. And so they really don't have a lot of time to go sit in people's offices and talk to them. Right. And so when one of these polished press releases come along or the willingness of somebody from a pharmaceutical company is in town and wants to talk, they're going to go do that and they're going to take advantage of whatever comes their way and then run with it because they really have no choice. And I think that this is really very pernicious and it's a very bad thing to have happen in health journalism because it means then that there is no independent voice, there's no independent scrutiny of whatever these people are pushing. You mentioned another interesting strand of this, which is sort of the imperative for web traffic in a lot of news organizations' strategies. You spoke to BuzzFeed, for example, and some other players who are big in the digital space. I mean, how did they try or fail to try to make very difficult to digest topics like health policy, a little bit more digestible, a little bit more shareable, clickable, what have you? Well, I think it's a challenge for them. Uh, as the, the BuzzFeed editor told me, it's, it's a real trick to t- try to get the right headline, make it appealing, make it attractive to uh, an audience, and still have time to explicate whatever they're uh, trying to talk about, and whether it's a complicated study as in the case of the uh, male contraceptive story that we told about in our piece, or something else. All of these are very complicated topics. And reporters need time to look at the studies. They need to digest it. BuzzFeed, I think, has recognized that. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of other news outlets aren't, and they tend to just sort of run with something that's got a real grabby headline and something that's going to be provocative, whether it's true or not, or half true, or one quarter true, or whatever. They tend to run with it, and that becomes their story, and that does uh, a great deal of harm, as Gary Schweitzer has pointed out in our piece. 
saying that it, it really does hurt people because they get the wrong impression about a particular intervention that actually might harm them, perhaps even kill them. Right. And so I think that journalists, in this case, have really abdicated their responsibility. Life or death stuff, literally. Presumably, we are going to have this big political fight over the Affordable Care Act. There is some room for debate now whether this will be a top priority for the Trump administration. But assuming it does occur in the foreseeable future, for both journalists and news consumers who are trying to make sense of this all, what are some of the big flashpoints, storylines that you're on the lookout for and people who are doing the best work in, in these veins? Right now, I think it's going to be difficult to actually crystal ball this thing because it is so fluid. And supposedly the Republicans haven't figured out exactly how they can make good on their promise and still keep this law sort of working. And the big problem here with the law is that in order to provide coverage to everyone, and that includes all the people with pre-existing conditions who now can get coverage even if they're on death's door, is really tricky unless you have an individual mandate. And that mandate was put into the bill when it was passed to require everybody to carry insurance. And so somehow the Republicans and other people who want to uh, get rid of the law have to reconcile those two points. And the point we keep making in our CJR pieces is that basically what Obamacare was was crafting on uh, the principles of a national health insurance like everybody's in uh, can get coverage and, and hopefully care, although that's debatable. But everybody could get coverage onto a private system. And in a private system, the players in the system, basically the insurance companies, have to make a profit. So when they take people who are really sick, they are going to get what we call anti-selection, which means that all these sick people are coming into their risk pool, costing them a lot of money, and they may or may not have priced their policy appropriately to account for those people. And so I think that looking ahead, the Congress is going to have to reconcile those two points. But the proposals that we're seeing now are really sort of back to the future stuff. Mm. They are the old nostrums that the industry used uh, ever since I've been writing about health care. And there will be a lot more movement in this space, and we will be here to break it down for you. Trudy Lieberman is a healthcare reporter, and she writes for CGR's United States Project. Trudy, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. We hope you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Also go to CJR.org and sign up for a membership for Columbia Journalism Review. It's 50 bucks a year to support good journalism. You get a few print issues. You get a weekly newsletter written by yours truly and some other special features from our editor and publisher, Kyle, along with the rest of the CJR staff. Thanks again for kicking it with us, and we'll see you next week.